in Ezekiel today, and specifically we're going to skip on over to Ezekiel 37. Now, Ezekiel itself, you could do an entire book study on Ezekiel, and it would basically be a vision study. Uh, I didn't want to spend forever in Ezekiel, I just wanted to hit some highlights of it. But these are all visions that Ezekiel has had, and some of it's just ongoing non-stop vision throughout this book. Uh, this one is a little bit different from the ones that we've been talking about so far. Uh, this one is, isn't so much God showing Ezekiel a vision of himself in glory as, as a, a vision of something to explain or teach and give a word to Ezekiel. And uh, this is actually probably one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I think it's, this is an amazing, an amazing passage, what we're about to read, so... We're in Ezekiel 37, and uh, if you've got you know Bibles with uh, headers at the top here, you already know what the topic is here: the Valley of the Dry Bones. And this is uh, the the vision of that of that, and this is one of the most uh, I think descriptive, most powerful events that anyone could have ever had, probably any, anyone ever had in history. I mean, in some ways, it plays out like something you'd see in a horror movie. You know, in some ways it plays out um, just, it's like something out of Lord of the Rings or something. I mean, it's just incredibly the way, you know, the way it plays out. But you'll see as we read along. So I'll start us reading, then we'll we'll talk about some of this. So it says in verse 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Now, so after God had given Ezekiel that an early, um, that early vision of splendor of God on His throne with the wheels and the angels and everything that we talked about last week, He then calls Ezekiel to prophesy. I'm not going to go back and read all that. I'm just, I'm just summarizing. He calls Ezekiel to prophesy, and uh, He then spends most of the book prophesying against various things, things like the priests of Israel, the shepherds of Israel, even He. He calls out the shepherds in the field. We always think of, what did those guys do wrong? They're the simplest and the most, uh, you know, how can can you go after shepherds, right? But he did. He called called out the shepherds. Uh, The princes of Israel called them down too, prophesied against them. So what you have here, you have a prophesying against the the very lowest of the low and the very highest of the high in the culture that they had there. And uh, he also calls out and prophesies against other nations in, in these past chapters. He, he points out Tyre, has a lot to say about the, the king of Tyre, uh, Egypt. Uh, so in many ways, Ezekiel up to this point, up to this point, comes across as a rather hopeless book. Comes across as just another book of lamentations. Another book that, you know, the end is here. Sorry, it's over with. You had your chance, you know. But this chapter here begins part two of that, of that whole, of that whole uh, 
uh, change. So it says here that in the beginning, it says the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Well, I'm just going to kind of talk about some of this uh, in, in an expository way and kind of go down through here and discuss this. And y'all raise your hand if you have any questions or comments or want to interrupt me or whatever. Correct me, anything. So, so these bones, uh, you know, I, I, what I want to start off by saying this. He, he, he does say in verse 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out into the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. Now, what other, in, in our culture, or not culture, in our uh, ecclesiology that we live out on a regular basis at Christ Community Church, where do we have, where do we see a hand laid upon someone? Anybody? Yeah, that's right. What was that? Did you say hand laid on? Uh-huh, yeah. yeah for that's right, for the sick, prayer. Uh, yeah, and uh, you, you said Eucharist, land, uh, if you're blessing the child, you're blessing a child, you lay hands on them, usually. Uh, also, you know, when we have someone who we're sending out or something, we often lay hands on them and bless them, you know, if they're going on a mission trip or something of that nature. Uh, if they, Greg mentioned the sick, the, the coming forward and the elders playing hands on them, which Scripture teaches you to do. That's what straight out of Scripture, Titus, I believe, uh, teaches that. And so um, we do this. So this is, this is in keeping with Scripture. Now, in this case, it is God himself that lays his hand upon Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord was upon me. So... There's the laying on of hands present here, just like we do in the church. In this case, it's God Himself, maybe Christ Himself, that lays His hand on on, uh, on Ezekiel, and He calls him to this task. And even when pastors are called in our culture, there's almost always a laying on of hands. I think we do that today. You know, just in this case, there's laying on of hands in Ezekiel's calling. It's just he's being called by only God Himself. God lays His hand on. Him. So there's, there's biblical basis, even all the way back in the Old Testament, cases like this deal with Ezekiel, that are behind things that we do today, like laying on hands. Uh, these things come from Scripture. And they form traditions, but they ultimately come from Scripture, you see. The, uh, so his hand was upon Ezekiel, and this evokes the idea of laying on hands. Another, another point I wanna, think I want to point out in this is that these bones... So Ezekiel is taken to this place and he, in this valley and he looks out and the entire valley is just full of bones as far as he can see, I would suspect. And surely this is probably no small valley. It makes it clear these are dry bones. Dry bones that are very dead. Dead bones. So, you know, I remember when I was a kid playing in out in the country. You know, we lived out in the country and and, you know, sometimes I'd find a bone just laying in the dirt, you know, in the field or something, probably an old dog bone or cow bone or something, you know. And I'd pick it up. It, it was dry. It was, it was dry. It was it had nothing in it. It was completely dry. It was useless. You know, you wouldn't even want to give it to a dog to eat because it, it didn't have any, it was nothing to eat in it, you know. It didn't have any marrow. It was just dry, you know. It's very brittle. I, I kind of visualized that's the way these bones were. They were probably in that kind of uh, in that kind of shape 
And there were millions of them because they filled up the whole valley. As you can imagine that. And we get the picture as we read on that these bones were just randomly strewn everywhere. They weren't, you know, you couldn't go to a bone and say, oh, here, here's where so-and-so was laid to rest. Uh, no, there's just bones everywhere, you know, laying in the field, laying in the valley. And so he has been brought to this place. These bones, they're past the point of decay. Uh, there is no hope whatsoever in anyone with any common sense relying on their own rationality to assume that there could possibly ever again be life in these bones. No one in their right mind would agree to that. Um, no scientist, no, uh, nobody that lived in Ezekiel's time, no one would have agreed that these bones can live again because they're just they're coming apart. They're dry. But then God comes out and asks Ezekiel in verse 3, he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I love what, what Ezekiel responds here. He doesn't shake his head. He doesn't say, I don't know. He doesn't say, uh, probably not. He doesn't say, no way. He doesn't even say, sure. What he says is, oh, Lord God, you know. You know. I can't possibly know, but you know, is what he said. And I really like that response and how he comes across with this. He it's almost like, God, I've, I've seen too much of what you're doing now. You've given me visions. I've seen you in glory. I saw you with the, with the seraphim and the cherubim, and I saw the wheels. I saw you lifted high on your throne. I'm not going to make any assumptions anymore. You know, It's kind of how I, I interpret Ezekiel's response here. Whatever God is going to do, he's going to do. And Ezekiel doesn't have anything to do, but come along with it, right? Does everybody, everybody kind of agree with that sentiment of what we're seeing here? Any thoughts? Or? Well, David's not just all, all in both a movie. Okay, yeah. Uh, there is a movie called Killing Fields. It was about the genocide by the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. And the main, the main part of the movie, the main focus is a doctor who has been put in the camps and he's trying to escape. He got out somehow and he's trying to leave the country. And there's this one scene where he's just stumbling along this huge field and he stumbles and falls and he realizes that he's in this huge bed of human bones. Hmm. And it's just so shocking and, and it's like the profundity of death. That, you know, everybody sure. who has ever lived except one mm-hmm. is either dead now or going to die. Right. Probably. Right, uh, and it's just it is just so profound. It's it's a scene very much like this, you know, mm-hmm. but just death is inescapable. It is right. everywhere, and you know, but God is about to show something else. Right, right. To Ezekiel, Amen. That's right. So when Ezekiel says, "Oh Lord, you know," it's like Ezekiel saying. So this is all you, God. I'm not touching this with a ten foot pole. You know, <laughs> it's, if you if, if these bones, you ask me if these bones can live. Only you know, and uh, that's sometimes a pretty good way to answer God. You know, just uh, to sit back and realize He can do whatever He wants, and you know, not make assumptions what He can and can't do, because He really can do whatever He wants in our lives. We all would agree with that, I think. So. 
So I think there's truth for us here that we can never leave closed the possibility of God's power in our lives. We can never leave that, that off of our mind, the possibility of God's power. Uh, God only, only God knows the future, and only He is able to do miracles. On a larger scale, let's, let's take this up a level, though. Since we're basically talking about you know the will of God here and, and, and how this plays with us. This also means that we need to think of the future and humanity in this world maybe as more in God's hands than ours at times than, we, than, we, than we're comfortable with. The main problem I have with a lot of secularism today and the way secularism uses science predicting our future is that it assumes God cannot do anything he wants at any time to change things because science doesn't really believe in God, right? I mean, you know, secular science, God's out of the equation. They don't believe in him. So they don't, that's no longer a factor. But as people who believe in God and believe he is God, therefore believe he is sovereign over all creation, we know that anything can change at any moment in time in the grand scheme of things in any way because he can do what he wants. Now, God has given us certain promises to give us a sense of what is to come, uh, you know, and that, that helps. But in terms of a lot of other things, I mean, our, our existence in the world's existence is in the hands of God. It's not in the hands of humanity beyond what God has told humanity to do to take care of, so to speak. Uh, science is valuable. You know, I, I'm one of these people that believe that science is something that is a gift from God. The ability to reason, the ability to follow a, a hypothesis through and test it and so forth and come to a conclusion. To me, I like to think of it as just, well, this is us observing the creation of God. But if you talk to, a, to a, uh, an atheist or agnostic scientist, they're not going to agree with that, that way of looking at it. They're going to say no. This has nothing to do with the creation of God. So God's out of the picture for them. Well, guess what? For any, anybody who had any common sense whatsoever looking at a bunch of dead, dry bones, for these bones to stand up and have flesh on them was out of the picture too. That was completely beyond anything that could, could take place possibility-wise. So, and yet, here we are again facing the fact in this situation and in our lives often, that God can do exactly what he wants. Whether we like it or not, whether it helps us or whether it hurts us, he can do what he wants. Because he is God. Any, any, anybody disagree with that or agree? Or? Do we ever speak about how God, God limits himself mm-hmm. in the sense of being consistent with his worship? Yeah. So what, what, what are you saying? I'm sorry. I've often thought about you know, the only thing that can limit God is God. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Because he, I think, will remain consistent yeah. with his word. Sure. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, if he's made a promise in the scripture, he's going to keep his promise. Definitely. He yeah. says his word goes out and mm-hmm. does not come back from the Right. I'm part of God. Go ahead. Part of God has expressed his attributes is in the regularity that we see in creation. Mm-hmm. It's it's very ordered. Right. 
yeah. physics works. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because that's an exp that's expressing the characteristics of right. God. Right. That's right. One of the ways that some people, theologians and others, and I kind of think think this way. One of the ways that people sometimes the way they interpret miracles is sort of a uh, just making something happen that suspends the laws of physics temporarily or you know God is God over reality right we agree with that so reality if he wants to suspend reality for something to make reality to be something else for a few moments no this person doesn't have leprosy it's done a spot on him even though you just saw him with leprosy well the, re the reality of the situation has changed so God has changed reality well that's he can do that he's God we can't do that but he can he can make it as if the leprosy note was never there. We can treat diseases with medicines, and, you know, but we can't make it to where it was never there. We can't, we can't go and, and make it as if it ne he was never infected in the first place. You know, there's always going to be markers. There's always going to be you know, things there that are going to show. So God can make it as if it never happened, if he wants. So um, are you going to say something, Craig? Well, I was just going to mention it. it was, it's been interesting Oh, yeah, James Webb, yeah. We're seeing things that are billions of light years away. And uh, some, some of the talking heads have, their reaction has been, well, this just makes us feel so puny. And there's got to be life out there somewhere and that kind of stuff. And, and then there was, there's been at least one other that I've heard that said, you know, this really speaks to me of the glory of the Almighty. Mm, wow. So, uh, you know, science is what you make of it. Right, right. Good point. All right, so verse 4. Uh, he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, this is God talking to Ezekiel, Say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these dry bones, to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and you will and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel, this is kind of funny because Ezekiel is normally one, one who's called to prophesy to the living, but he's being called to prophesy to the dead. In this case, God told him to prophesy to bones, dry bones, they were dead. And he does it, but I can't, you know, I can only imagine what he must be thinking, you know. You're calling me to prophesy to dead bones, you know? <laughs> How can they repent, you know? But, um, so, here's the thing, though. Uh, the overall issue of this event and this kind of a prophecy, uh, what is he prophesying to, to take place? Anybody? Resurrection. Resurrection, yeah. And that's really the, the crux of all this because... It's different than other prophecies in that sense. You know, there, there's not a prophecy here about, about uh, you know, I don't know, the, the famine's going to hit the land. Or there's not a prophecy here that just only that, uh, you know, that um, someone's going to be dragged away in chains or, or uh, even good prophecies. You know, this is a different kind of prophecy. This is a prophecy about resurrection is what it's about. 
And that's why, that's why I love this passage so much. Um, it, it really, not only does it, is it obviously about resurrection, it also even shows us a picture of what resurrection, resurrection looks like. It kind of gives us a template about it. I'll get into that here in a minute. So he's called to prophesy of the dead, and he does that. Uh, the bones only live because God remakes sinews and flesh for them. There's no way to escape God doing something impossible for them to live. This is unlike any miracle that some try to explain by natural occurrences. Uh, you, you've heard and read stories, you know, people that might try to use science to explain things like the Red Sea party or the Bethlehem star will say something like, oh, maybe an earthquake caused the, caused the uh, Red Sea to do this. And they'll start going back in time and see if they can find an earthquake, you know, that was recorded in history. Or they'll take the Bethlehem star and, and they'll, they'll start looking at astronomical events around the same time. It, oh, it must have been a planets in alignment. You know, we happen to have Jupiter and Saturn and a bunch of planets in alignment. You know, that's, that's the Bethlehem star. People will do that. You can't do that with this miracle. Uh, this miracle, this miracle is, is all in as far as the miraculous nature of God because it's the resurrection. And you can say the same thing with the resurrection of Jesus. It's all in. There's no going back and trying to find some possible uh, other natural way of explaining it. Someone is dead, someone is alive again. It's impossible. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Uh, so let me ask you this. This this is where this is where where I like to really start thinking this through and, and coming to an understanding of what of how God and resurrection works. Now, I think if we are Christian and we go out to a cemetery and we see a, a grave a gravestone there and a grave plot, we know that somebody's been buried there, and we believe that if that person is a, is a born again Christian someday that that person is going to be resurrected. Correct? That's what Christ, Orthodox Christianity teaches. A real body. Exactly. With a real body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we all believe that. And, and, and there's places in the Scripture it talks about graves opening up, you know, and these sort of things. And the dead meet, meet them in the sky. So, well, let me ask you this. What about, what about the guy that that was cremated and somebody took his urn and spread his ashes out in the ocean uh, in two or three different places. What's going to happen with that guy? Yeah, God's going to call all the atoms and molecules and bring them together into that body and change it in a moment. Amen. Because they're going to have a real life. Right. Like Jesus. Yeah. Somehow. That's right. That's right. Okay. Revelation says the sea will give up. That's right. Mm-hmm. It is good news, yeah. Any other thoughts? I'm not too worried about the technicality of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you shouldn't be. That's right. It's God's prerogative. We'll figure it out. <laughs> I tell you, some people do get caught, do get worried about that stuff. Um, you know, um, you know, a lot of people cremate these days. Some people don't cremate because they are nervous that it might affect their resurrection in some way. Um, the, uh, the, you know, years back, uh, in the Middle Ages, 
uh, early on, I mean, cremation was a pagan thing. You know, nobody cremated because you need to have a body that would resurrect. I was medieval thinking, you know, you, you didn't want to have a bunch of ashes. So, um, I think that I have read that the Jews, maybe it's the Orthodox, are very meticulous to get all the remains they can. That Jewish mm-hmm. fellow that died in that shovel was asked, which one was it when it was coming back in? Columbia. Yeah. Okay. They were very particular to try and get as much of his remains as they could. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that, for what it's worth in the sure. conversation. Yeah. Right. And I, remember, I don't remember how, I think it was in Augustine's in Caridian. It's not that I'm that big a deal. I've read little pieces of it, so I'm not a scholar. Yeah. But they, he said, mentioned something about some people would ask about the people that come back in the resurrection. What about their fingernails? How long they've grown or something like that? <laughs> it's like, yeah. they were really thinking very specific. I was like, that's <laughs> I don't. I, I, that is something along those lines. It yeah. It's Augustine. Yeah, I got you. Uh, I got you. <laughs> right. Not that he was worried about. Uh, right. Like right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The uh, the irony of certain parts of the medieval church being really concerned about burial versus cremation. The irony of that is that in the Catholic Church, their most revered people, their saints. They had their body parts spread all over the normal yeah, world. Yeah, um, that's true. So I just, there's just kind of an irony there. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I that I do like about sort of their tradition of doing things that I think maybe we should give some thought to is um, they consider certain objects to be part of the person. Hmm. Either like Jesus' clothing somehow being a part of it mm-hmm. or um, I don't know, someone's staff. I, sure. I mm-hmm. Yeah, because you, you read about that, you know, sometimes they'll dig up a, every now and then they'll read in the news, somebody will dig up a saint in some basilica somewhere and he'll have a Bible with him or something like that. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. He'll have a little testament with him or something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Take on some of this stuff as part of our identity, mm-hmm. becomes a part of us. Yeah. Either that's another layer of cruelty to burning somebody at the stake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. That, that, that is true. Uh, Savonarola, uh, and I'm sure this was uh, true of other heretics, you know, was, was hanged and burned and scattered all around so there wouldn't be any relics left of them. Yeah. Yep. You know, I like what Angela said. It goes along with what Jesus thought. Childlike faith. Yeah. You tell mm-hmm. a little child something, they believe it, you believe it, what you tell them. Right. How did it happen? How is it going to be? It doesn't matter. Right. Do you believe in faith? Exactly. Believe. Exactly. Yeah. And then the other part that I like is what John says. When we see him, we will be like him. Yeah. Now, whether we're wearing a robe or a crown or maybe a new shirt or a new beard, I don't know. Yeah. But we will be like Jesus. Right. Exactly. Amen. Yeah, and there's you know there's people in history that have. Uh, I, I I'll give you an example. Somebody that. There's no way, logically speaking, somebody like this could be put back together. 
That would be, for instance, someone sitting sitting at uh, uh, ground zero when one of the Japan, Japan uh, nukes fell. You know, uh, Nagasaki and what was the other place? Hiroshima. Yeah. Uh, well, they're vaporized. Those people are those people are gone. I mean, there's no their their atoms are out in the atmosphere. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, it, you, you try to reason through that. You know, how could God make a body out of that? Well, He can. He, he can, uh, because part part of resurrection, or well, all of resurrection, is recreation, because He puts, as we'll read here, He puts sinews on the bones. He brings the bones together. He puts sinews. He puts flesh on there. It's miraculous. It's totally miraculous. Just as miraculous as the creation of man in the first place. You know, really, if you think about it. And yet, mysteriously, it's going to be the same person. You know. So, um, so this addresses, this, all of this, I think, addresses uh, that those who disbelieve the resurrection because they, just, they feel it's too big a thing for even God to do. And that would be such cases, you know, that, like I was saying, bring up uh, cremated bodies or ashes spread, things like this. Uh, but we believe that God can resurrect regardless, that He can put all things back together and uh, can do this miracle. I love the narrative of this passage because uh, He says, Ezekiel doesn't just describe what He sees, He describes what He hears. And uh, in, let's see. In verse 4, give me a second, I've got to find where I'm at. Yeah, verse uh, 7. So I prophesied and it was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. So visually you can imagine the bones are moving to one another and coming together in the right places, you know. Uh, would have been quite a frightening sight, I would think. Put some... bones next to the ankle bones. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's where that song came from. Okay, from this. From this, it came. It was written about this. Okay, cool. Um, so that would be kind of scary to see that. It would be to me anyway. And then, and then as the miracle goes on, the bones come together into figures, and then God makes sinews onto the bones, and then He makes flesh come upon them, and to cover them with skin. And uh, flesh had come upon them, and the skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Says in the verse of eight, end uh, of verse eight. So, so in verse nine, it says, "Then he said, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, this thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, so that they may live." So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. So they still needed the breath of life in them. They still needed the breath of life blown into them uh, to live. God commands the wind to enter them, and therefore breath came into them, and they lived. John 33, uh, Job 33.4, read a different verse here that pertains to the breath of God. Job 33.4 says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life from Job 33.4. In Acts 17, Paul, when he's at the 
place where he's debating with the Greeks. He says of God, nor has he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So there's no misunderstanding here that the breath of life comes from God himself. You know, you can have a pile of bones and flesh sitting there, but it doesn't have the breath of life in it. It's not, it's not alive. You know, it's just not alive. So, so uh, verse 11, then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel. You shall know that I am your Lord when I'm, and when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. I will place you in your own hand that you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and will do it, declares the Lord. Now, of course, the Jewish scholars would apply that toward the nation of Israel, or the people of the Jews. Uh, we believe that this applies to the church and the church being the, the, the new people of God. The Israel of God, that's right. Yeah, right, right. So, you know, this, prom- this is our promise that we will resurrect in this way, in this beautiful way. And, and, and I believe that Ezekiel was blessed to see not only to be told there'd be a resurrection, but to even get a vision as to what it looks like and how it's going to happen. And uh, how it's, you know, how it's going to come together and everything. It's pretty amazing stuff. To think about it. So, any final thoughts? Well, that, that this last scene kind of speaks to what we were talking about earlier. You know, God can pull together bits and pieces mm-hmm. and atoms and stuff and ashes and, and build a body with it, but it's still just a dead body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, until He breathes life. Into right. It. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's one of those abstract nouns that he uses that he applies to himself in John. So he is, in some way, he is life itself. Mm-hmm. There is nothing that is living that did not get its life from Christ. Right, right. And you know, he has the right to take take life and give it. Mm-hmm. So it's all him. Right. <laughs> in the here and now and in the future, it's all him. Amen. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Was you going to say something? Yeah, I was just actually just built upon all this, but I think there's also parallels to this to salvation. Uh, if, you yes. take, if you take Paul's comments in Ephesians 2, mm-hmm. you were dead yeah. in trespasses and sins, mm-hmm. but God being grace and mercy made you alive in Christ. Mm-hmm. So Christ being alive, there's a resurrection. There's also this resurrection from the deadness of our sin. Sure. There's a, there's a great uh, cartoon, Christian cartoon site that I like that draws there's one of uh, one of the main obvious famous debates in early church history was between Augustine and Pelagius, and there's this 
scene is in the cartoon that they drew where Pelagius is throwing this live raft at this skeleton floating in the water. And Augustine's standing next to me and says, Brother, I don't, I don't think he's going to grab it. <laughs> you know, and, and then it has, it has that Ephesians passage underneath it. Yes. Yeah. He's not grasping for life. He's dead. Yeah. And yeah. God breathes life into him. Right. That's great. He's yeah. not going to grab that life raft the gospel. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's a great cartoon. I need to buy it and put it in the app. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good thoughts. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, we got done a little early today. We got about 15, 20 minutes for service, but I've kind of reached the end of my stuff today. If anybody has any one thing you want to share or thoughts, or otherwise we can be dismissed and just chill out for a while. Do you, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, you do you think this was a vision or do you think this actually, I guess it really doesn't matter, but how much of this do you think was uh, visionary and how much... I think it could. I think it was either vision or a or a vision of the future. It was one of the two. I don't know if that if that answers your question. Yeah. I, I was just trying to think about. You could not really tell about this episode. Just kind of standing around. They don't die again. This is kind of awkward. Yeah. Like y'all can go home now. Or... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, how'd I get here? <laughs> what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> one, of the, one of the outstanding things about Ezekiel was his obedience. Yeah. I mean, he was asked to do crazy, crazy, horrible stuff. Right. And the only time he complained was when God told him to put his food over his own waist. Please, not that. <laughs> right. And God relented. But, I mean, he's. I want you to lie on your right side before today. <laughs> All right. Yeah. He just, I mean, no, no telling what was going on inside of him. Right. He he was obedient to what God asked him. Do something else. And he was a contemporary to Daniel. Yes. Who was living high on a hog off in Babylon, (laughs) you know, highly honored. Yeah. I read something that he and Daniel were close to the same age, and Jeremiah was alive, but he was a little older. Probably about 40 years old. Yeah, they were all Babylonian mm-hmm. captivity and era people. Yeah. And you know, you just look at them and you say, well, God loved Daniel and he hated Ezekiel. <laughs> yeah. He loved them both equal. Right, right. Cool. Thanks, y'all. Thank, thank y'all for coming.